Amen. Good singing. You may be seated. This morning, one of the first things I did is I knelt down and I sang that song. My Jesus, I love thee. So I wanted to sing it again at the closing of the day. My Jesus, I love thee. If ever I love thee, tis Jesus, tis now. <laughs> I appreciate you being here tonight. I appreciate you being in the house of the Lord. And I appreciate your desire to study God's word. I wish that were the desire of every believer. And I wish for all of us that our love for and appreciation of God's Word will deepen. Isaiah has been a challenging book. You know, it's one of those books, you're reading through the Bible, sometimes you'll get to these, these, this portion of the Scripture, and you get through the major prophets, and they say, oh, no, now I've got to go through the minor prophets. It seems kind of overwhelming because so much seems undefined. So much of it is, is just challenging, and you're left with more questions than answers. And uh, so as we take it and just slowly plod through it, I trust that uh, you receive some blessing from this, and you begin to have kind of an overview of the whole. Now, the simple truth is, if you can get the, the, uh, the overview of Isaiah from the beginning to the ending, understanding the, uh, the main theme of Isaiah, it's going to help you understand the, uh, much of the Old Testament as it, as it all comes together under the umbrella of, uh, into the New Testament, all the way to the millennium, as, uh, as it encompasses so much truth. It's a little bit like taking the Bible as a whole and condensing it into one book. And, uh, and, and the truths are there from beginning to end. And I you know, think you possibly will see that tonight even more graphically once we get to... Uh, the next chapter, hopefully we'll cover a couple chapters tonight. Well, let me read for you verses 1 and 2, then we'll pray and ask the Lord to meet with us of Isaiah chapter 52. Tonight, Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 1. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. If you're taking notes, number one is Judah and their captivity. And letter A is Jerusalem received a call to revive. Revival. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your love, for your faithfulness, and for this place you've given us to meet together. Lord, we don't deserve the comforts that you've given us here. It's such a blessing to have a place with good heating and air conditioning and comfortable seating and enough room that we can spread out. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord, tonight we need more than a comfortable setting. We need your presence. And so would you please meet with us tonight. Quicken our minds. And Lord, help us to understand these chapters and to receive from them what we need that we might live more for you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Referring to verse 1, this chapter goes into the millennium. The city of God's people is called by a joyful messenger to awake as if they're asleep. Awake from your spiritual slumber in which it's been for so long. It's called to cover itself in beautiful garments. Well, 
I think it's referring to the holiness of the Lord. Cover yourself in His holiness. In that day, Jerusalem will be guarded by the Lord Jesus Himself, gloriously preventing the wicked, ungodly intruders from coming into the city. Something similar, Ephesians 5.14, Wherefore He saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. And then Nahum 1.15, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cast, cut off. Verse 2, Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Let her be. Judas told to free themselves from their captivity. God's people have been sold into slavery to the Babylonians. Remember the timing of the letter. They were being prepared to be invaded by Assyria. As the book transgress or, uh, covers over time, uh, the Assyrians invade and take many of them away. Then they are deported into Babylon for their 70 years. After the 70 years in Babylon, God speaks to Cyrus, the king of Persia, and encourages him to allow the people to come back to rebuild. And of course, most of them did not, but a remnant came back to rebuild the temple and the walls. And Isaiah, through its prophecy, covers that entire time period at various portions. And so God's people have been sold into slavery in this portion of the prophecy. For 70 years, their judgment, because their wicked idolatry, would last. Here, it's a call to Judah and Jerusalem to free themselves from their bondage. It was time, after 70 years now, it's time for them to return and rebuild their city. And just like I said, God said, I want you to go back, but most of them did not go back. A, re a relatively small remnant went back to rebuild. They had likely been led away from their homeland in shackles, including manacles around their necks. Can you imagine just one after another having these, these chains and manacles around their necks tied to another with chains as they're led away to Babylon. Isaiah 51, verse 14, The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. And I am the Lord thy God, that divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. Verse 3, For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. Letter C. Judah's spiritual depravity left them worthless. Worthless. They're wicked. And like a slave with no value, Judah was sold into slavery. They were sold to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Mother? 52. 52. Like a slave with no value, Judah was sold into slavery with no payment being made to their seller. They would eventually be similarly released and returned. Spiritually, their wickedness had left them worthless, causing them to be sold under sin. But by the grace of God, they'd be redeemed or allowed by Cyrus to return. 
So the concept here, ye have sold yourselves for naught. They sold themselves into slavery, but who got paid? Nobody. They sold themselves for naught. And on Jeremiah 15, 13, Thy substance and thy treasures will I give to the spoil without price, and that for all thy sins, even in all thy borders. Romans 7, 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal under sin. They were spiritually depraved. Verse 4, For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. So letter D, Israel was oppressed without provocation. Here Israel's past is being retold. Being reminded of their bondage and mistreatment in Egypt along with the oppression of Assyria. Just as Israel's initial welcome in Egypt had eventually turned into bondage and mistreatment, so Assyria, with no provocation from Israel, chose to invade and oppress them. Of course, behind the Assyrian assault was the prompting of Almighty God. God stirred up Assyria against Israel. John 15, 25, But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Verse 5, Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. So letter E, God described why Judah should be released. Looking ahead to the Babylonian captivity here, God told his people the reason it was time to remove them for their captivity. God describes their condition as being for not or without just cause or incitement. Their bondage was now oppressive. Their captors literally howling in shouts of triumph and insult. And in this heathen environment in Babylon, the name of Jehovah was being continually blasphemed. Ezekiel 20 and verse 14, But I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen, in whose sight I brought them out. Roman numeral 2, God's people and their Messiah. Verse 6, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. Letter A, Israel will eventually come to know their Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. During Israel's captivity, their religious worship was forbidden. The name of their God, Jehovah, was only heard in mockery by their captors. They were in that environment for 70 years. During that time, it left them dull to the name of God, and even more clueless to any teaching about the Messiah. However, this prophecy states there will come a day in which every Jew and Gentile alike will know the name of their God. They will be introduced to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They will learn in that day that He is their only hope for salvation. 
Ezekiel 20 and verse 44, And ye shall know that I am the Lord, when I have wrought with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O ye house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Do you think the average person on the street knows any of the names of God beyond uh, the ones they use to swear with? You were to ask them, yeah, give, me, give me one of God's names. They'll just look at you funny. Well, what do you mean God's name? God? <laughs> What's his name? In this day, the, that most intimate, most revered name of God, Jehovah, was being thrown around blasphemously. Verse number 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, and that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Letter B, the message of the Savior will come to God's people. Though this has its immediate fulfillment in the message to the captives in Babylon, that their captivity of 70 years is over. Its full context is that during the millennium and those events leading up to it. Word will travel from messengers of the decree of Cyrus to return to Jerusalem and rebuild. This message will bring great joy and gladness even though most of the Jews will refuse to go back home. During the millennium, likely due to the preaching of two witnesses, there will be 144,000 young Jewish men who will hear the message and get saved, each of them becoming evangelists, taking the gospel around the world. Their message of salvation in Jesus will be good tidings to a lost world. As Israel begins to comprehend the reality of who Jesus Christ really is, that they had unjustly crucified the Son of God, they will mournfully exclaim, Thy God reigneth. Psalm 96.10, Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Verse number 8, Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Letter C. Israel will sing praise to the Lord Jesus in that day. Here we're talking about the establishment of the Lord Jesus. In His reign, He will initiate God's people collectively worshiping Him in song. Israel will jubilantly sing praises to the Lord accompanied by the nations of the earth. And that day, the millennium, Israel will see Christ face to face. Just think about that. They'll see him bodily. They'll see him face to face. They will witness firsthand the restoration of their homeland as Christ rebuilds Jerusalem and Judah into its prophesied glory. Isaiah 40 and verse 9, O Zion that bringest good tidings, Get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, 
Behold your God. Verse 9. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. Better D. Israel will have reason to sing for joy. In that day, in the day of the Lord's reign, it will be a blessed time for Israel. The complete restoration of the land in the day of Jesus' reign will cause his people to break out in worshipful praise, singing together to the Lord. Jesus' rule will bring peace for Jerusalem and great comfort to his people. Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments, he hath cast out thine enemy, the king of Israel, even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. And taking the full context here, this can only be talking about the millennium. Verse 10, the Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Letter E, the power of the Lord will be on full display at Armageddon. <laughs> I don't know why it does it, but... You, most of you know this is true. Facebook has this way of, if you look more longer than a millisecond on a picture, they're going to realize that you're interested in that and start sending you lots of things like that. I must have one time looked longer at a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was doing a pose, because now I keep getting pictures of Arnold in different poses and showing off his incredible muscles. And I chuckle at that because God is going to reveal his mighty arm. Now, <laughs> that's an anthropomorphism, which means God doesn't really have arms. It's a spirit. It's not like God's got arms and legs like you and I. But for you and for me, we need some kind of a mental picture because we can't imagine what God's like. So he, 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 he describes himself in a way that we can understand. Okay, he's going to roll up his sleeve now. Look out. He's going to show his mighty arm. Look out. Well, um, Arnold's going to weep when he sees God's arm. <laughs> God will reveal his awesome power. Described here with this anthropomorphism by ascribing actual arms to God. At the end of the tribulation, the Lord Jesus will return in great power. He will annihilate his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon. Such a powerful display of his power will be seen by the entire world. Now, I don't know what's going to happen by then. It seems like, it seems like every day they're coming out with some new, better, and bigger, and more powerful and deadly weapon. A bigger bomb. A bigger arsenal. A more deadly strain of virus. Seems like it happens all the time. So let's just say we wait around for a few more years. 
Imagine how incredibly powerful an army with all of man's technology all aligned in one place could be. And the Lord Jesus in return says, be destroyed, just like that. It's all gone. Mighty arm. Psalm 98.1, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm, hath gotten him the victory. That first dot there, a warning to returning Levites to stay clean. Verse number 11, Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Well, who are they that bore the vessels of the Lord? It was the Levites. Again, with a more immediate fulfillment, with a call to return from Babylon from their captivity, the ultimate view is the call at the beginning of the millennium that will go around the world for Jews to all return to their homeland. On their departure, they are warned to touch no unclean thing. This was a message directed to the Levites who would be employed once again in the care of the vessels of the temple during the days of the millennial worship of the Lord. Verse 12, For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rearward. Next dot is, Jews will return by their own will, not forced. They're not going to be forced to come back. In Isaiah 28 and verse 16, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion, a, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Roman numeral 3. God's people begin to acknowledge their guilt. These next few verses... If we could even begin to comprehend the truth behind them, your heart's going to really go out to them, to the Jews. When in that day, they will realize their personal guilt in crucifying the Lord, the Son of God. It will dawn upon them little by little until the full realization hits them that they are the ones responsible. Verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Letter A, a reverential look to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, my servant. The Messiah is who comes into view here at this stage of Isaiah's prophecy. As king of kings, Jesus will deal prudently or reign both judiciously and prosperously. He will be lifted high and reverently praised. Hebrews 1.3, Who, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 14, as many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, 
and his form more than the sons of men. Letter B, Israel will eventually realize their guilt in Jesus' death. This is likely a description of Israel beginning to comprehend their liability in the crucifixion of Jesus. It was their people who condemned him to such an awful death. They had killed the Son of God. As this realization of their horrible sin begins to sink in, they're astonished, meaning appalled. With a graphic description of Jesus' body after his merciless and cruel beatings and crucifixion, the author leaves no room for a question of its intended subject. Isaiah looked to the death of Jesus on the cross. Some of you, like I, have had conversations with Jews, unsaved Jews. And as you take them back to Isaiah and you begin showing them some of the passages here, it just won't click. It just, it just does not click. To us, it's so graphic. We know who this is, Jesus. This is so clear to us, it's Jesus. But because of their cho choice to not believe, they cannot see it, they're blinded. Isaiah 50, 15 verse 6 reads, I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Verse 15, So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Let us see, the nations of the world will come to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. This realization that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, literally the Son of God dying on the cross to redeem His people, will reach out to many nations. They will understand, and many will trust this message of redemption for themselves. Pompous kings will become mute at the true greatness they witness in Him. Those kings who had been ignorant of who this man was would in that day come to a startling realization that Jesus was in fact God. Now in verse, chapter 53. Lord willing, we'll finish this chapter as well, but if you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know that this is the chapter of all chapters in the Old Testament. This is, gives the clearest description of Jesus and his sufferings. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Understand, I did not break between chapters. That's why your outline continues here. Because the thought here is continuing. We're talking about a nation, a nation that had rejected Jesus a nation responsible for his death who refused to believe that he was the Messiah. Who hath believed our report? Well, none of them had believed it. Letter D, will any of God's people believe the gospel? The previous chapter gave insight into Israel finally comprehending who Jesus was and their role in his death. The prophecy asked if anyone truly believed the truth of Christ until Jesus returns in glory. Think about that. Most of Israel, 
will stay blinded to the truth. It will not be until their eyes witness his great power that they will begin to recognize the deception they're under. The power of Christ to break the bonds of sin and death on the cross was shared with the Jew first and then the Gentile. Sadly, the truth was rejected by his own people. In Isaiah 40 and verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Letter E. Jesus was physically a very ordinary man. He was born as a tender plant or as a tiny baby, not in great political power. He came into a spiritually dry people with a message of hope and love. If you were to look at Jesus in a crowd, you wouldn't pick him out as the leader. You wouldn't say, wow, look at his stature. He didn't stand out physically from the others. He looked, the, he looked like the average Jew of the time. Unlike the commanding stature of Saul of the Old Testament, who stood head and shoulders above the rest, Jesus did not stand out in a crowd, making him virtually unnoticed. Zechariah 6.12, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Verse 3. He's despised and rejected of men, men of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, our, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus went from being ignored to despised and rejected. He sorrowed greatly over the spiritual blindness of his people and their unwillingness to believe on him as their Messiah. His sorrow was almost inhuman at the response of his father turning his back on him. The Jews from that day until now have refused to even consider the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah. They refused to consider him and chose instead to despise him. In the day of Israel's comprehension, they will remorsefully declare, we esteemed him not. Sadly, by then it will be too late. John 1, 10, 11, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Letter G, Israel will eventually comprehend the truth. But until then, they will believe that justice was served. In that day, as the full realization confronts the Jews that they were the ones that killed the Son of God. The truth will begin to dawn that there was purpose behind Jesus' death. He came to carry 
their griefs and sorrows. Looking back, they remembered believing that Jesus died because he, is a, he had offended God. They believed that he had offended God. And he got what he deserved. Ezekiel 36, 31, Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. So blinded, they convinced themselves that Jesus got what he deserved. He had offended God, and so God got him back. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. Letter H, the truth of Jesus' sacrifice will continue to astonish them. The Jews will eventually personalize the work of Jesus on the cross. They'll begin to understand that he was wounded and bruised because and for them. For peace to be reestablished between them and God, there had to be a chastisement. So Jesus took that chastisement upon himself. In his amazing mercy, he took the punishment, our punishment, upon himself. The stripes that we deserved he were placed upon his back. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Letter I, Israel will begin to take individual responsibility for their sin. Again, the consciousness of the Jews is in view as they realize that they had been led astray like sheep. They had to take full responsibility for their sin. No one forced them to deny Christ. It was each of their own individual choices. God placed the sin of the whole world on Jesus to pay for its ugly price. Jesus became our sin as he died for our sin. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Number four, our suffering Savior's sacrifice. Verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Letter A, Jesus did not respond when attacked. He was abused physically, verbally, emotionally. The thought behind the words oppressed and afflicted suggests being beaten down with abusive words and beating and grossly humiliated. It's common for sheep to bleat when coming to be sheared, but not so with our Lord. He said very little all the way to the cross. He didn't complain. He didn't blame or curse anyone. He didn't say a word. 
Mark 15, 3 and following, And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Verse 8, He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Letter B, Jesus faced unjust treatment from unjust men. He was made to endure the injustices of a religious and political power out of their minds with envy and fear. The phrase suggests that Jesus was taken from the prison of legal restraints and cast into the lawless hands of his accusers. There they chose to deny him of any forms of true judgment and justice. So Jesus died, leaving no children to carry on his legacy. He was cut off for the sins of his people. It would be up to his disciples to carry on his work, that of seeking after the lost with the message of redemption. Verse 9, And he made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Letter C, Jesus died with the wicked and was buried with the rich. You might remember that Jesus' cross stood between two thieves, two convicted criminals. He died with the wicked though one of them called on Jesus to be saved before his death. After his death, Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb, that of Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus died having never sinned, but having carried the sins of the world. Hebrews 7.26, For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Number five, the exaltation of the Savior. Verse 10, yet it, pre it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Letter A, the Heavenly Father found pleasure in his son's suffering. One of the reasons that I believe the Bible is because nobody else would have had the father finding pleasure in the death of his son. In no uncertain terms, God the Father was pleased and what Jesus was forced to endure. His suffering was necessary for the Father's plan of redemption to be completed for man's salvation. God's love for us is so incredibly demonstrated in this truth. God looked to the future when believers in His Son Jesus would circle the world, 
Jesus' death would plant the seed of a mighty army of heirs to his inheritance. The actual death of Christ literally prospered in the hand of the Father as he saw his plan, the plan of redemption, fulfilled. Psalms 89, verse 29, His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Verse 11, He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Letter B, the Father was satisfied in Jesus' payment for sin. When, he, when sin entered into the world, it brought with it an offense against God. The holy and righteous nature of God was offended at such wickedness. In order for the relationship to be restored between now sinful man and righteous God, he would have to be appeased. Such is the meaning of the word propitiation, an appeasement. God was propitiated or satisfied in the blood payment of his son. This payment made by Jesus would provide a way for all to come to him, have their sins forgiven, and the Heavenly Father satisfied, propitiated, appeased. Romans 3.25, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. Verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Letter C. Jesus is being exalted by his Father. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death for our sins, the Father promised to highly exalt him and to divide the spoil from the riches of the nations with his people. Jesus would be exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. In his death, Jesus emptied his soul to death, hung alongside sinners, and bore the sins of all who would come to him by faith. He lastly became the mediator between sinful man and the Father. Philippians 2.9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And I feel so inadequate covering Isaiah 53. So you're going to have to receive the rest of the blessing on your own. It's an amazing, amazing chapter. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love. And thank you, Lord, in this Old Testament passage in Isaiah. Thank you for revealing to us this graphic description of your son and his suffering and his 
carrying our sin. And Lord, revealing your own struggles with it. Lord, I thank you for this time. Would you, I pray, help us to understand the truths you have here for us and to live for you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.